Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Brewers, it's time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zanashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey. I'm and brothers and sisters. I'm Jamil Zanashev. I'm Travis Gumbel. And I'm Mike Prasant, and you're listening to Brew Strong. Special guest? With special guest, Neil Spake. Yes. I mean, there was a time when we had this perfectly. Uh, <laughs> you're out of practice. Now I think, I think we just don't care anymore. We had either more or less beer that time. I don't know. <laughs> I'll get it. I got this. Hey, at least, at least, uh, at least I didn't mess it up this time. Mike. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you know who's not sorry? Your buddy John? My buddy John Lickman. That's right. He's got nothing to apologize for. He's got the greatest quality gear and, uh, you know, lots of creative, new, innovative uh, equipment. Like my friend uh, Jason Petra says. He's innovating your brew day, yep. uh, you know, lots of creative stuff and, uh, you know, great range of equipment from, you know, the anvil brewing stuff. It's to hardy, solid, you know, equipment, not a lot of extra bells and whistles, just good, uh, uh, you know, brew gear. Uh, Travis, you have an anvil uh, equipment, don't you? Yeah, I have the all-in-one, the foundry. Anvil foundry, good piece of gear, right? I've got the conical. Conical, there you go. Anvil conical. And uh, he makes everything from that. He makes, you know, the top tier stuff with all the bells and whistles, if you want that. He even makes commercial grade brewing equipment for your, uh, your your smaller craft brewers up to, I think, 10 barrels. You know, so good good size brewing, brewing equipment they make. So uh, check them out, BlickmanEngineering.com. Good folks. Uh, they really... Um, are you know salty the earth uh wonderful folks that uh, uh are are working hard to make uh, brewing better for everybody so check them out they pay for this show so you don't have to that in itself should make you question uh john blickman's sanity but uh you know thank him you can send an email to feedback at blickmanengineering.com and tell him thank you for for hosting the show because he's done it for 16 years now so uh very much appreciate it all right. I wonder if he's going to set up a feedback at anvilbrewing.com email also one day. Well, the funny thing is for 
uh, you know, like a year or so, I was like, yeah, you know, email them at feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. And then uh, John pulled me aside one day and we we're at a conference or some something together. He goes, you know, there is no feedback at Blickman Engineering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, whoops. He, he said, that's okay. He said, uh, I set it up. He goes, you know, uh, that's the kind of guy he is. And then <laughs> he, he went ahead and, and set up the uh, account, uh, the email account, so he could get all those things from you guys. And so, uh, it, and he tells me he, he sees them and he very much appreciates uh, every single one of them. He's like, I really, really love getting those emails. So yeah, it kind of makes it feel good. You know, you, you do something nice. It's, it's nice for people to, you know, say thank you. All right. We're going to crack right off here with Andrew uh, from Australia. Uh, he is going to, he had a question. He said, uh, uh, my most recent batches have all gone a bit awry during fermentation, some kind of infection. They usually soak the stainless kegmenters with sodium perk, then store, then add five liter of sanitizer and shake, and then add wort and yeast. Something isn't right. So what do I change when hunting an infection trying to obliterate it? Caustic, hot or cold, what ratio, keg washer? Well, that assumes that the problem is in the keg, that the, the cleaning process of the keg is not sufficient and that it isn't somewhere else. You know, I've seen examples where uh, folks have uh, had air blowing through their their garage and it was infecting their beers. You know, I think they, they put a fan up because it was so hot. And, uh, you know, that was a problem. So he's just a little correction there. He, but he's, oh, he's using a keg mentor. Take- I mean, a keg mentor, I take it, is a keg-shaped fermenter. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, right. That's, uh, I think that's what you meant, that's, right? That's what I meant, yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it could be, you know, the word, you know, between chilling, you know, it, it gets chilled and before it gets, you know, transferred, who knows? Unless Everything's he's, he's putting after it in he's after he's after he's boiled, everything's soft, right? Anything soft after yes. boiling. Yes. Um, cold side is always dangerous. But uh, to answer your question more directly, um, assuming it is that, the um, the best way to handle it is, assuming it's a stainless keg, uh, keg manner, hit it with boiling water. You know, hit it, hit it with, you know, uh, hot water. Boil some water, fill it halfway, a little bit past halfway uh, with uh, boiling boiling water. If you can seal it up and put a little bit of gas on it so it doesn't collapse when it chills, then flip it upside down. Uh, heat. Heat's the best way to, to kill off whatever's in there. Because uh, you can use caustic. You can use, you know, the, the, the sodium uh, percarbonate uh, should do okay in in cleaning uh you know some uh physical action I, i'm not sure if your keg mentor is like a corny keg where you can reach in with your hand and maybe clean underneath the lid if it's like a you know more like a sankey keg then it's really tough um try and make sure you know some of the you know that's being scrubbed down uh and then eat eat heat heat at Heretic, we would ferment clean beers after doing uh, mixed culture with bacteria and bread in it, in a, in a fermenter. And we, uh, this isn't just an idiot talking that everything was clean. 
we had a lab, we tested everything to make sure that indeed our follow-on batches were clean. Uh, and the reason we were able to do that was we would heat them up. It would recirculate hot water through the, the spray ball and through the, the uh, heat exchanger. And we would heat that water up until we could read uh, 180 degrees on the outside of the, of the jacketed fermenters. We knew the inside was hot. Would you, would you keep the same soft goods on all your CIP style valves, all your... Um... We'd swap out all the, all the soft materials we yeah. have. Yeah. We had bins, red bins for all the, the and, and red gaskets and everything was red that was in the dirty and everything was white that was in the clean. And we wouldn't mix the two. But yeah, use, uh, Andrew, use, use heat. Um, saying about day four, the beer's aroma changes. Can you consider changing O-rings maybe? Yeah, make sure you change out all your soft goods like, like uh, Travis is saying. So you can get an arm in. Yeah, just to make sure you, you know, feel around in there too. Cause sometimes you can feel like beer stone. That's why heat's good because it'll kill what is ever underneath beer stone. And you can get beer stone in just by, you know, you, you'll you put in a cleaner, even, you know, PBW and then you, uh, you know, uh, acid, uh, you know, hot and then you'll rinse it with cold water that has uh, calcium in it and it'll form a stone. I'd also throw in there, might want to think about changing out all or looking at the way he knocks out and what he's using to get into that tang mentor. Right. I mean, you could very easily inoculate a beer with dirty hoses or nasty carb stones that you're oxygenating with or. Right. And anything that touches the beer after, after it's gotten cold, uh, check that, you know. Yep. Snap yourself off a fresh piece of hose. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully that helps. Uh, Brent was asking, what is a homebrew club challenge competition contest that each of you think would be fun and engaging for beginners, novice and advanced brewers? Tell you what, I can see the smoke rising. What we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll take a, uh, a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have your answers right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. 
Brent was asking a question before the break. He's listening live. And so he's able to ask in the comments section on the Facebook page, you know, what's a good challenge for novice to or beginning to advanced home brewers in a club that uh, is kind of fun. I got a couple of ideas. One is, you know, pairing up, you know, a novice and an advanced brewer together uh, to, you know, uh, brew a beer together uh, for, you know, club competition. Another would be those ingredient kind of lottery things. Yeah, the fantasy those, those are kind of fun. Um, or, you know, everybody's just got to use a, you know, weird ingredient. I think one of the advantages, you know, um, what's kind of fun is, yeah, you know, maybe, you know, you just, you know, you, you write up a bunch of strange ingredients, you know, Cocoa Puffs and, you know, uh, Fig Newtons and, uh, you know, Beef Wellington and, you know, you know, you write these on slips of paper and people ah. draw it's a slip of paper and that's what they got to brew with. And it's, you know, the beer's got to exhibit, you know, that as its characteristic. You know, that can be fun. And then, you know, it throws some randomness in there. Um, you know, that, that that's a good one. You guys? I'm not good at this. I'm more of a disengager than an engager. You've known me. I'm a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea where they pair up. I think my homebrew club, we don't, we need, we probably need to do more of that where we're brewing as a brew, brewing as a group or as a pair and trying to get more time together as a club. That'd be really cool. I think. What about you, Neil? The other thing I, I think is kind of cool is, uh, some, a couple of our local clubs sometimes will have, you pick a style and then everybody brews that style. Mm -hmm. And then if they do that semi-regularly, people learn styles and what goes into them. So that's real handy. Or you pick like a style, uh, especially with, Belgians. And if everyone's wanting to try like a different yeast strain or a different hop profile, make sure every pair of brewers or brewer does something slightly different to the same base recipe. And then you get to learn about mm. uh, the flavor of this yeast versus that yeast, depending on the consistency of the brewers. But it being the holidays. <laughs> okay. The white elephant where you, know, you draw the numbers. Mm. And then um, there's a bunch of slips of paper or whatever they would be or little, you know, you can do it with cups or something, pint glasses that have a style name on on the bottom of them. And the first person goes up and picks one, announces it to everybody, and then, you know, somebody could steal that style or pick a different one. I like that. And, That's right? cool. And white yeah. elephant. You know, cool. Yeah, brewing now, yeah. now going back to you saying earlier, white elephant with a mystery ingredients. With a mystery ingredient. There you go. That's yeah, nice. I like these ideas. Yeah. Or uh, how about kind of, you know, uh, Secret Santa, where you get somebody's name and then you give them the style that they got to brew with and the secret ingredient or something. Mm. Uh -huh. The one you know they hate. <laughs> right. The hazy <laughs> recipe. Or, yeah, maybe you have to give uh, them the ingredient too. You have to buy it yourself. So it's not some crazy. So if it's expensive, you know. You know, I ship Neil a pound of mosaic tomorrow from an unknown address. Mosaic's <laughs> fine. Just don't put it in a cloudy beer. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that was some very creative ideas. I think we ought to write a magazine article using all these wonderful ideas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, I really like that white elephant con uh, concept because that is actually fun. Yeah, that would be fun because, again, you can steal and, you know, Absolutely. let's get that whole yeah. thing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be good. All right. Matus asks, uh, hi, all. I would like to know what is your opinion about low oxygen brewing? I've come across this concept just lately. It's not present among Polish, the Polish home brewing community. Is it worth the effort to keep oxygen out of the hot process as much as possible? What are your recommendations about this? Of course, keeping oxygen out of the finished beer is crucial, but what about mashing and boiling? I think it was, it was, I don't remember which show it was, but Bamforth did a, yeah, we talked about this and how I'd even did an impersonation of him. He was my professor at Davis for brewing science and he talks about it and he gets into the organic chemistry of what's happening when, you know, lipoxidase interacts with oxygen mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, you are changing the beer, but at the end of the day, all of the stuff he explained is there is no, no noticeable difference it does not matter. in brewing. Yeah, it does not. I mean, he said you probably shouldn't go out of your way to oxygenate, but you don't need to worry about it. Either. Well, and you look at, uh, you know, the German brewers. So, I was in Dusseldorf and they, several of them use a, one of those cascade chillers where it's a series of tubes, like a copper tubes. Mm-hmm. Budweiser uses it. Um, you know, a bunch of the, mm-hmm. most of the German brewers use this, especially the older ones use this type of cascade thing where the, the work, hot work goes running down the outsides of this thing and picks up a ton of oxygen. It's not a problem during fermentation. Any, any oxygen that's been, you know, somehow entrained in there is is going to get stripped out by the yeast. So I'm going to give a yin and a yang if I can. Uh-huh. On the one side, I don't know why I care about it before I'm going to oxygenate it anyway. And on the other side, give it a shot. See if you like the results. See, I mean, because oh, I mean, the sure. one thing I hear is you won't get the same color. So then you're going to have to decoct. I mean, you're going to have to adjust your recipe because you're not going to get as dark of a beer. So you're, you're not going to get the same beer regardless. You're going to have to do different things. Your recipe that was one color is no longer that color. So now you have to adjust your malt. Is that what you wanted to do? Give it a shot. Let us know. Okay. I'm not sure how we got, yeah, we got to color and malts, but. <laughs> well, no, no. The low oxygen up front is supposed to make yes. a lighter, a lighter wort. That's one of the arguments. You get a lighter wort if you keep your mash O2 free. Yeah. yeah. I, I know. Yeast mm-hmm. will re, re reverse uh, the the color pickup in oxidized beer, so I, I I don't think it's I don't think it's an issue at all. And then as Michael's saying, bam forth is like no, nah, it's not an issue. They did a lot of research on it, I guess, and they even know the mechanisms and what's happening, and mm-hmm. they don't really. All of the stuff gets undone, like you said, by the fermentation. Like a good healthy fermentation will wipe out whatever you did with oxygen. There you go. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, you know, you can send in your your questions via email to uh, brewstrong at the com. And I'm actually we're 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 covering the questions that have been sent in. We're we're, we're getting on them now. Uh, it's 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 pretty good. Uh, Clayton uh, asks. We're all in agreement that microoxidation of wooden barrels benefits the complexity of long-aged sour beer, right? Yes. Uh, I have been, uh, I have a beer souring in a five-gallon keg, but I'm getting some decent complexity, and I think it's because I leave a four- to five-foot serving plastic tube Cobra tap constantly connected, and I think 
oxygen is permeating the hose tubing and adding to the complexity. Thoughts? Hugs and kisses, Clayton. Right back at you, Clayton. Well, no, so the barrel age, fine, but so that I think you might have an opinion on the tubing. And I know Jamil has uh, thoughts on the tubing from his uh, diving, et cetera. And one thing he left out is the keg pressurized or not? Because if it's not pressurized, you can almost guarantee you're going to get some O2 migration in there one way or another. Even if it is, you'll, you'll get like oxygen will, will go across the, the barrier. The, if, you, if you're pressurizing a keg with CO2 and you have you know plastic membrane there that's O2 permeable, uh, the oxygen will go in. It's partial pressure of gases. It's not total pressure of gases. So, um, yes, I believe that it's possible. It would be extremely slow. One thing is silicon tubing is uh, extremely oxygen permeable. Oxygen goes through that like, like a house fire. Vinyl tubing, less so. The thing is the dip tube, that Cobra tap is attached to the dip tube, which goes to the bottom, which is stainless. Um, and it's a long way down and it's got just that little, little spot on the bottom that it's open. So I wouldn't think you'd get much. You will get some. Um, I think the stuff in the line is probably heavily oxidized, <laughs> but the stuff in the keg, I don't think you're getting a whole lot there. You probably get some across the, um, uh, the seals in the keg, especially if you're using silicone seals. I, I do believe, you know, um, one of the things a long time ago, I worked out the numbers on, or somebody worked out the numbers on using those plastic caps on carboys. Those, those plastic so caps, caps. Yeah. Yeah. They will, uh, allow just about the right amount of oxygen in, uh, to your, carboy similar to a barrel aging uh similar to what they do in the the large fooders and like rodenbach those have very low uh oxygen if you get down to like a wine barrel it's much more oxygen you get down to something smaller like a whiskey barrel it's even more oxygen you get down to like a 30 or five gallon barrel it's even more oxygen the smaller you go could be you're getting something uh, but I wouldn't think it would be much. Um, it would be, it'd be a tiny bit. Uh, so you, you, you could get some from, you know, initial oxygen when you've transferred. Depends. But yeah, I, I, I don't think you're, I don't think you're crazy. I think uh, it certainly is possible. You're getting some. So, so Neil, do you um, try to replicate the cast condition when you make English ales? Uh, not really. Uh, and the, the only reason is you got to drink it. Um, <laughs> I'm a, invite I'm, me over, man. Just I, like, I don't know how that's a problem. So, I mean, they open ferment, but then they, then they encapsulate and it's stored for a while. And, uh, I mean, the, I guess the modern day cask really is a stainless cask, correct? Until they, but it's still always open to the air. So that's well, what they put it in the pub, they open it up, right? Yes. Yeah. But unless and you unless you violate camera rules and use a cast breather that allows CO2 or mm-hmm. oxygen to CO2 to come in and blanket it right. as it's withdrawn, which is an absolute no-no to purists, uh, you could get three days, it's gotta be gone for the most part. So 
but you but you don't you don't let the you don't let the furkin breathe until you're ready to prep it until the public no, is ready to prep it for service. Yeah. I'm just going through some some thoughts in general on on you don't really see that beer doing what it does. It's magic doesn't really happen until they pop it open and yeah, start absolutely. you know getting prepped for serving. Yeah. Um could it be that he just has a really good uh set of bacteria in his in his keg there making some tasty beer? I mean, yes. how much oxygen would it take? Quite possible. Yeah, it doesn't take a whole lot, you know, micro-oxygen over a long period of time. Could be, you know, if, if there's a lot of temperature changes. Uh, of course, breathing. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. It kind of expands and contracts. That could, could be working in, in his favor on that. I don't have too many kegs that will hold uh, a good seal at zero pressure as the temperature fluctuates. They're going to breathe. Yeah. My kegs, your personal. All right. Thin. Is quite upset with me. Uh oh. Ben says, Hi. He says, Hi. I usually love to listen to you, but this time I got a bit irritated. One, if you don't get a good attenuation, the answer is not necessarily that you didn't pitch enough yeast. When you're a home brewer, it is actually more li- likely you didn't pitch yeast in good shape or you didn't provide enough nutrition. Oxygen, fan, minerals, etc. In my experience, yeast vitality is paramount. And only if you are sure that is taken care of is your pitch more yeast the answer to your attenuation problems. Well, let me let me tell you this. When I started, when I started talking about yeast and pitching proper amount of yeast, the thing was nobody was pitching their proper amount of yeast, or very few people were. And Yes, it is 20 years later, and now I guess it is possible more people are pitching their proper amount of yeast than not pitching their proper amount of yeast. Uh, so that's, that certainly is possible, but um, we, we still need to reiterate to new brewers that they need to be pitching enough yeast, and it's common, commonly one of those things. The other thing about viability and vitality of the yeast is that you can in some ways make up for poor viability and vitality by pitching more yeast, which is why we we say that. Uh, because a lot of brewers don't have your experience and don't um uh you know know whether yeast is is viable or or the vitality of yeast or they don't have a lot of options. So they buy the yeast, it gets shipped to them, and then they got to go with what they got to go with. So that's one of the reasons we say pitch more yeast. But yes, I would agree with you. It's better. I think it's better to pitch less yeast in better health and vitality than it is to just pile on more yeast. I would agree with that. That's that's one of the two things I was definitely going to say, Joe. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure it's... The first thing I was going to say is, surely you didn't piss them off. I probably pissed them off, you know. <laughs> that's yeah. It was one of and us. I have an extension off of that. I think it goes before his number two. If you're going to go to his number two, but the extension off of the yes, off of number one. The extension off of that is, if you're repitching, you're going to have a lot of non-viable yeast. So unless you go through a quite the ex- extensive process, you've got to pitch more of your repitch because it's aging every day. I have yeast dying off in my container that's in my fridge right now. So I have to pitch more yeast. I'm not going to make that yeast healthier necessarily, but I am going to use more of it because some of it's dying off. I think I think what he's stating and what you state all the time is hand in hand. 
I would agree with that. I don't, I don't think he's wrong. I don't think uh, we're wrong. I think it's, uh, we did, but he's frustrated. So we have to assuage his frustration. <laughs> well, the last, the last time we give him hugs that, and kisses. Yes. Yeah. There you go. No, I just, what you're saying about the vital and healthy yeast, like, yeah, in a perfect world. But I think in, in the, like, he, I just think that again, with like pitching more yeast actually is, is, is a better problem to have than under pitching. So, I mean, like, you know, like you've said it plenty of times where the flavor of the beer will be thrown way off if you massively under pitch compared to slightly over pitching. I mean, I think as our homebrewers, I mean, I can even think about attenuation. I mean, that could be mass temp, mass pH, uh, yeast strain selection. I mean, there's a ton of things that go into it, but I would say that, I mean, I have a tilt and I've watched it under attenuate because I, I was trying to stress the yeast and I, I went too low on the pitch rate kind of thing, you know? Right. So it's, I don't know. <laughs> Just, I know I was reading this today when you sent yeah. it over and I was like, I mean, there's a ton of things, right? It's it's not just one. There you go. There's a way to kind of account for a lot of the flaws in your yeast health or vitality or whatever by just slightly over pitching, and you know, it's and and, and looking at your pitch rate. And I, I go I go back. I know this isn't a calculated question, but if you think you need to pitch X amount of yeast, but the yeast has some age on it, it's not that seventy. It's not that all the yeast is seventy five percent is good. It said that maybe 25% is no good and 75% is good. So you got to pitch a little more. Yeah. You know, it's anyway. Well, if you're using like body tens, that, you know, if you don't oxygenate it right, like, okay. There you go. All right. Let's, <laughs> there you, let's, you got a bunch to cover here. Uh, number two, yeah. uh, Dr. Maria Monslogo's so glues experiments at Sierra Nevada were with starters. I, I don't know where this, I don't recall referring to this at all. At Sierra Nevada, we're with starters that were below the Crabtree level. I think she used an OG of uh, 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 1.08 and uh, constant oxygen feed. That's more or less how uh, they grow dry yeast, I think, yes. Uh, The yeast will then respire, not ferment, and it will get a lot more energy out of the sugar. Consequently, you are able to grow a lot more cells, but that takes a lot of nitrogen, and there's not much of that in a uh, 1.08 starter. So she had to feed them quite ridiculous amounts of uh, free amino nitrogen. I'm not sure what she used, but it was organic dead cells, not DAP, uh, diamond phosphate. Uh, The point actually was not primarily to grow more cells, but to grow cells that were more healthy and which would give better attenuation. And it seems it did. Uh, I've tried it and it works, though I'm not sure I want that increased attenuation. At least most of the time, I don't. So I've gone back to my normal procedure. One of the things that providing the free amino nitrogen does and any you know, oxygen, all these other nutrients is so that the, the yeast cells can reproduce. Um, and then also so that, you know, they have healthy cell walls uh, to allow them to attenuate the beer. Um, so it's a combination of the thing. And and sometimes, you know, just pitching more does uh, take care of the, the problem of them trying to uh, replicate more and having, you know, and, and running up against the limit. 
you know, when they do not have the the nutrients they need. So it's, yeah, it's a blend of things. But, but Jim Milton, here number two. Yeah. He, he's, he's, he's talking briefly about making yeast for making yeast purposes. Yes. And then saying that he, he tried that and maybe he was doing it for a starter. I can't tell. Uh, normal we, we talked about something like this. There was another live Q&A yeah, where somebody was talking about keeping the yeast in the replication phase where right. they were respirating, not fermenting. Right. I I was trying to think of that. And, and just coming from what Bruce Strong is kind of more of a homebrew show, I would think. It's like I would be just making starters, you know, like I don't need to try to keep the yeast and the respirating to. Anyway, I mean, the, the reason they do that is to get more growth with less sugar because it's cheaper that way. Um, right. So that's, they're just trying to make yeast mass. Um, it's an economic. But he's know. saying, oh, she did it to get like the healthiest possible yeast. So I, I, I really, I don't know that study. I don't know that. So I, I really can't comment on it. As for not putting nutrients in the starter, when you grow yeast in a normal 1040 starter spinning on a stir plate, you get a lot more growth per gram of sugar than you do in a normal brew. Uh, yes. Uh, hence, the need for nitrogen to build new cells is very likely to be higher than what the work can supply. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Um, so that's a very valid reason to supply the yeast with some extra fan. Sure. In a normal brew, it's not that vital, I think. No, you don't want to do it in a normal brew. Um, but it still won't hurt. Yes, it can. If you add, me if I'm wrong, Jamil. If you add fan to a normal brew, you can end up with rocket fuel. Yes. All of your measurements on yeast growth. Yes. Those were measurements, not calculations. Correct. Right. So when you speak of how you build up starters, et cetera, and grow yeast, it's measurements. Under yes. a microscope, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, you don't want to add extra free amino nitrogen to um, most ferments. If you're making average strength beer, usually there's enough free amino nitrogen. You can add a little bit, but you start pushing it, you're going to ruin your beer. Um, the yeast will really take off, and you're going to get um, uh, you know, a hot uh, ferment. And it'll ferment out super quick. Uh, let's see. Uh, let me finish this. Um, it still won't hurt. I, I don't, I, I caution against people thinking adding free amino acid won't hurt. I think, though, that it might be a good idea not to add it at the start, uh, but to wait until fermentation has reached high croissant or maybe a little, even a little later. Then there might, uh, there might be a shortage, and then you might want to. Avoid troubles towards the end of fermentation by adding a little. Found this to be beneficial, especially when brewing my pilsners. It helps the attenuation and it helps keep the H2S levels down. Well, yeah, the, the, so there has been some studies on when you want to add free amino nitrogen. It mainly is done with wines and meads and ciders. If you add free amino nitrogen at the wrong time, um, you will, can actually stall out your fermentation. So uh, if you add free amino nitrogen at the beginning, uh, the yeast can kind of race ahead and then you stall out your fermentation, your fermentation won't complete. So there's been a bunch of studies and a bunch of papers on this. 
And there's a very specific time if you're going to dose uh, free amino nitrogen, you do it. I'm pretty sure off the top of my head, I think it's one third of the way into fermentation. Uh, there's a very specific time uh, that you would add it. You don't add it later. You don't add it earlier, um, et cetera. And he says, okay, now that I've got that off my back, I once more say that I greatly appreciate your show. Keep up the good work. We listen to you here in Norway too. Well, thank you, Finn. It's very, very kind of you. Very uh, interesting uh, email. Uh, it sounds like you're 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 very keen on uh, yeast and fermentation, which is near and dear to my heart as well. So uh, hopefully, I will see you next time I'm in Norway, and we can have a couple of pints together and discuss yeast and starters and everything else. Yes. Sorry for pissing you off again, Finn. I'll take full blame for that. It's not Jamil. It's Travis's fault, Finn. You know that. You didn't call him out as very kind of you, because, you know, Travis is a very delicate flower. But, hey. <laughs> uh, let's see. I, I just keep coming back to the reading and, and studying I've done is all malt worts have enough nitrogen. You don't need to add a bunch. And then when we were talking to Avi from Lalamond, he was the one that said, don't put nutrient in starters. I remember that. Because mm. that was like, I had been doing that for years. <laughs> He's like, no, you don't need to do that. Yeah, I still I still put a pinch. Sorry, Avi. I should have been on the show, but no, I, I still put a pinch. <laughs> he just said it wasn't needed. But I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, it probably won't be the end of the world. A little pinch. I had, I had a little little bit of zinc to mine. Zinc. Yeah, I'm just adding that. I add my zinc my brew, my brew day. I, I still use a little bit of a Y yeast because I know it's not very strong. Mm -hmm. Just, just, just the tiniest pinch on my starter. Can cheek and gum, <laughs> and my uh, and my wake up work. I put a little pinch in my wake up work. Who are you pinching? What? <laughs> Anything that won't run. <laughs> All right, let's take another short break, and we'll be back right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Uh, Brent was asking the chat. He said, uh, been pondering the idea of an oat wine. Was thinking of following similar recipes of a barley wine. Thoughts? Um, yeah. Never made one, but I've had one. Yeah. Uh, I respect the brewer, but I would advise not to do it. How how much how much percentage of oat was in there? Too much. Yeah, yeah. I think if once you get past <laughs> twenty thirty percent, probably too much. Yeah, it was not a very tasty beer. If you were going to do one, I would say go with like golden naked oats or something like that. Yeah. But you you do have to be careful. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of especially McClay's oat malt stout. Uh, with a famous Scottish uh, style stout, but you got to be careful with the oats because they have such a higher fat content than some of the other. So in something as big as a mm. barley wine, uh, I think you'd have to go careful, or you'd have a a mushy mess mm. in the mangoes. That oat malt stout. What percentage is oat malt? It's like is it all oat malt? And they made a stout. Here's, here's the curious thing. Um, when I went through the actual records from the Scottish Brewing Archive, when I was over there, uh, it was like 20, 30 percent 
So at the time, uh, there's a brewery in the borders, Scottish borders, Broughton, that brews a, an old malt stout. And he's like, oh, no, you can't use anywhere near that. So I've never got a clear answer to that yeah. from a historical perspective. It, some of these records are really hard to read. But, yeah, you can't, just like Jamil said, you, you can't use much more than, I don't know, 10, 20 percent. You're really pushing it because it, it can get real gummy. Even if you use the, the naked oats. Uh, I really like Thomas Fawcett's oat malt for this type of thing because it gives you some silkiness. But the yield on it is really, really poor. You really got to up the quantity to get any kind of benefit out of it. It's kind of fun to play with. But I, I'm not sure what, uh, to get back to the question, I don't, I'm not sure if, if what he's thinking is, can I get some of that oaty character in an oat wine, barley wine kind of kind of thing. I, it, it's an interesting question. It's just oats can be really tricky to work with. I, I think one of Jimenez, one of his pointers from doing stuff like oat malt stout is, is use, you know, the rolled oats and toast them in the oven to kind of get, if you're looking for the flavor and the silkiness with a smaller quantity, but I don't know. I don't know what the what the actual uh, listener is, is going for. Y'all need to do a, co- a collab there. Uh, put a recipe together and make it happen. And I actually know Brent. I could uh, I could get you guys. Uh, he's a he's great experimentarian. He likes to try. He just he's got that send it mentality. All right. I remember one time he was making a beer. He threw a log in. Just threw a log in the fermenter. Just let him do his thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, Andrew asks, hi, Bruce Strong crew. Thanks for doing the show and sharing your knowledge. I'm just getting back into the hobby after nine years uh, off because of kids. Uh, My questions are Blickman related as I recently bought an Anvil Foundry and an Anvil Snubnose PET uh, conical fermenter recently. I'll let Johnny Boy know you guys were the reason I checked them out. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Number one. How much headspace is too much? I recently got an Anvil Snubnose Pet Fermenter, and I have no intention of fermenting under pressure. I wanted to drop my temp uh, to clear and carbonate prior to kegging without the risk of oxygen suckback. Uh, sounds reasonable. I'm not quite uh, ready for a stainless conical yet. The Snubnose is 9.2 gallons, and I was debating go- doing 7.5-gallon batches or sticking with five-gallon batches. I'm not opposed to moving to 7.5 gallons, just wondering if you'd be concerned with 35% headspace. Too much headspace? Well, I actually did a calculation on this one time. I was really curious how much how much additional CO2 would you need to, to make up for the, the change in temperature. And what, what I found is it's not really the headspace and like the temperature change of the gas in the headspace. It's that you're changing the solubility of the the beer and it will actually absorb a bunch of CO2 or oxygen or whatever it can get a hold of because of that cooler temperature, you know, gas solubility and and uh, temperature are inversely proportional. So it'll that the liquid is actually also pulling in gas. And so I actually was like trying to figure it out and like, oh, but if it's just like ideal gas law. It's not a whole lot, but then if you go, oh, but the, the the solubility changes in the in the in the beer can cause a lot more vacuum. Right. Well, I think this is think. why he's using that because I guess you can attach uh, gas to it 
and you can keep it under right. And that's what I would recommend is just keep it under. Yeah, but but don't just pressurize the tank and then unhook the CO two because that's still not going to be enough with that solubility change from depending how much pressure you put on it, I guess. But yeah, I'm really curious, Mike, about uh, whether or not the veer itself is pulling in more CO two or the headspace. So it might not do them any good to fill it with more wort because it's going to pull more CO2 anyway. Now, I use a half-gallon uh, mason jar double-linked system to hold my blow-off to where that's what it pulls in. So I have at least a half-gallon of right. CO2, theoretically, that's been bubbling out of my fermenter the whole time that it pulls back. Well, I think when it, when it comes time to chilling it down, you know, just hook up gas to it. I think you'd be good. Uh, one of the things... Uh, you know, uh, fermenter headspace, I think too much is, is people get too concerned about that. Uh, at Heretic, we had 120 barrel, uh, conical fermenters and the least we could put in them was, you know, about 40, 45 barrels. Um, the reason was the, uh, temperature probes we had to be covered. And there was a time, you know, I think we did something where we moved a temperature probe down to the bottom and we filled one with like, you know, 30 barrels or something like that. So it can be done. When the beer ferments, it is going to give off so much CO2 that it's going to flush out the, the head space in that, in that fermenter. And you do five, five gallons in a 9.2, you're fine. It's more than going to flush all the air out of that. And that's the only thing you're really concerned about. So uh, it, it'll be fine. You can do smaller, smaller batches in there. I, I wouldn't worry about it. And then, you know, like uh, the guys are saying, just hook up, uh, you know, some gas to it. So it doesn't suck back in. Like it should be fine. Uh, number two, it sounds like Travis has an anvil foundry. I'd love to hear some tips from an advanced user. Well, if we had an advanced user. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's a great piece of equipment it can do anything you want it to do uh i don't use it as an all-in-one i have a separate hlt etc but being able to brew on electric and the volumes i want with the power i want uh if it ever dies on me and I'm, I'm like 60 70 batches in at least i'm going to buy another one there you go uh any any specific tips yeah um i Use a liquor tank? Uh, yeah, if you want. I mean, I, I'm I'm in Blickman's Anvil. Well, it's not his group technically, but he's in there. I'm in the Anvil group on Facebook. Uh, ask me questions there. You can find me. I don't mind answering anything. It will let you do what you want to do. You don't have to bend your rules to it. Nice. All right. Uh, let's see here. Henrik, he's asking, uh, greetings, beer wizards. <laughs> He saw you waving your wands around and he thinks you're beer wizards. Wingardium hopiosa. <laughs> uh, That's how I make IPA. <laughs> they say that three times. All right. Hen- <laughs> Henrik from uh, Sweden. I'm going to Sweden in March. Uh, looking forward to it. I love Sweden. Uh, Henrik, if you're around, you, you get yourself to the, uh, the uh, brewing conference in Malmo. Uh, March, I want to say 13th, 14th, 15th, something like that. Uh, I will be there. If you don't go to the conference, I'll still be at Malmo Brewing on one of those days and uh, 
at the beer fest on that Saturday. Uh, maybe we can meet up, have a pint. Uh, greetings, beer wizards. Wife and I went to Prague, and while there, we visited the Pilsner Equel Museum and Tapster Academy. We spent an hour with a professional tapster learning how to pour a Pilsner using the Czech uh, tap, basically a ball valve, and how to produce a perfect pour. The explanation was that the correct way of pouring protects the beer from oxidation by pouring under a foam cap. This is a three-step pouring technique as seen in the, the video. If, if you haven't seen these online, they, they, will, they will show you. They've got like the all foam, the partial foam, the, you know, the half foam. Uh, one, open tap slightly, 10 to 15% to pour foam. Allow some to be spilled before putting the glass under at an angle while the tap touches the glass. After two fingers of foam, open fully and submerge the tap under the foam to protect from oxygen, straightening as you go and fill the glass. Close the tap and remove quickly from tap to avoid any drops onto into the poured beer. Uh, essentially, this is a cap-on foam technique, but for serving a pint. From my perspective, this is logical, but what do you think? Science or BS? If the science is correct, does it uh, make any noticeable impact in reality? Regardless, I need to get one of those taps. Cheers, Henrik from uh, Sweden. Those are expensive taps. It could be a ball valve like he states, but they're like $300 taps. Yes, yeah, ball valve. Yeah. Essentially a ball valve. Uh, but, you know, with the, like brass plating and, you know, all fancy swoopy uh, stuff to it. The, some wood around it kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, you know, like some, seriously, there's a wooden section. What are you doing with your hands there? All kinds of stuff, man. <laughs> I am working that tap. The, uh, the, thing, the thing is this. Um, foam is not the best protector of, uh, beer, uh, from oxygen. I realized running a canning line and, uh, just obsessing over dissolved oxygen levels. The problem with beer foam is it's still beer. Um, it's every, you know, it's every bit as liquid on the outside of those bubbles as the liquid beer is. And if it's, and it settles back in your beer, and if, and if yes, and, and then it just collapses back down into the beer. And if it's moving at all, like bubbles do, uh, or if it's a rough surface, you're actually increasing the surface area versus just plain liquid. If you had flat, still liquid, uh, it will pick up less oxygen than the the foam, because that will all again, it's. You know, it's it's you're increasing your surface area, which is the opposite. The, the opposite is it's opposite of what you want to do. The interface is is become become more. So my so, nucleation points slash dirty glass are making my beer <laughs> oxidize faster. I, I just don't think there's enough worry about this. I don't think you're you're ruining your beer. I think. How many days are we leaving this beer out before we drink it? I'm telling you, man. I, I, my my scientific, uh, <laughs> my thought process is drink it faster. Yes. If you're worried about oxidation of the, the pint, uh, drink it faster. I think Travis is on to something here. I think it's... it's Embrace the fact that it can open up some oxygen, too. That's that's another point, talking about beers. Um, I think uh, the... Uh, I think uh, uh, this this pouring thing is done more for show for the tourists than it is, um, you know, like a valid, really 
scientific thing. I, I, I just don't think there's any scientific proof or, you know, that it, it makes any sense. Um, the scientific proof for me is these oxidation reactions don't happen in 20 minutes and they don't happen when you're drinking the beer. I, I don't, you know, it's like, especially if have... it's colder, it's going to go slow. I mean, if it was at room temperature or hot, uh, warmed up and then, you know, mm. applied oxygen, you know, you're, you're, you know, go yeah. faster, but, uh, colder, it's going to go slower and, we need Mike to do the calc on temperature versus how much O2 it pulls in. Yes. The reactions speed up, but the warmer doesn't pull as much O2 in. The colder slows it down, but it pulls more O2 in. I just, I just think it, you know, these oxidation reactions are slow. And unless you're letting that beer sit there for three days, you're going to be fine. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I definitely think you, you certainly have an hour to drink the beer. The, right. uh, I think what does happen in these check pouring uh, methods is that you're breaking out a lot of CO2 and that uh, really, you know, it's, it's similar in a way to, uh, you know, Neil to, to, you know, going up, uh, you know, the Northern part of England and using a sparkler, yeah. you know, yeah. you use a sparkler and, you know, it, it creates uh, aroma. It breaks out a lot of the CO2 it comes to a softer, creamier uh, feel. Yeah. It's like uh, doing, a, you know, a Guinness Nitro pour. All these same reasons. It, uh, you know, personally, I think it enhances the the mouthfeel and the flavor of the beer. I really enjoy it. So I think there's there's value to what they're doing when they pour it this way. Yeah. I think the explanation is somewhat specious. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. I'm and I. I think your your explanation is very reasonable. We have a brewery here in Austin, Live Oak Brewing, that does a Czech Pilsner. That's their that flagship beer. And even Michael Jackson swore was on par with Pilsner Kell. And they have one of those taps. And that's what my experience was. You tell them they'll do it three different ways. What I get is exactly what you explained. You, you get a more richness of the malt because some of the CO2 has been broken down and a softer mouthfeel and that type of thing. So, yeah, I can't, I can't speak at all to the scientific aspect of it. It, it definitely gives it a different texture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I think the pouring's quite valid, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as a flavor experience, though, not yes, as a I think the, the reason they gave you is a load of hooey. One of the things that struck me, though, is putting the... the tap nozzle into the beer yes which is a big no-no typically in the, in the um, u.s yeah. it's it's all yeah. uh you know food safety thing yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's like we're not I mean, the outside of your tap ought to be as clean as the inside of your tap yeah or you shouldn't be serving the beer but it's, it is it's a big no, -no. I, yeah I, I don't think it really matters if if you're only putting you know clean glasses up to the faucet it, it becomes an issue when people have drank out of the glass Reuse and then the glass. you're refilling yeah. the glass, then you you don't want to do that. That's a big no-no. But if each glass that goes up there is always, you know, perfectly cleaned and sanitized, I, I don't think putting the, the faucet in the glass is that big a sin. It's just something in the U.S. or a lot of people elsewhere. You know, if, if you, again, if you go to England, you refer back to our previous show about going to, you know, you know British beer tourism, 
you know, the swan neck of the cast that goes all the way into the bottom of the glass. So, <laughs> come on, Mike, get a stem this big, dipping yes. down in that glass. Come on, Mike, give me some. Yes, that that's a big <laughs> stem. <laughs> It's not just the tip. Right? right. And so you don't, you don't, uh, you don't want to, uh, you know, you don't want to re reuse glasses in that case. Uh, let's see here. We have time for, yeah, I think just one more. And what we'll do is we'll do that. Maybe we got two more. We'll do that uh, after one last quick little break. We'll be back right after this. To the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're doing live QA. We're here with our special guest, Neil Spake. Thank you for joining us uh, for these two shows. Uh, it's been been cool having you. And uh, looking forward to our next trip together uh, coming up to Germany. Let's see. Uh, if you're. Listen uh, live. You can always ask questions in the comment section on the Facebook page. There's the live video going on. You click on the comments. You ask your questions there and they pop up in our little window here and we're able to see those. Uh, If you're not listening live or if you want to ask a question uh, that we haven't answered today, you get on to uh, your email. You typey typey and you put in uh, Bruce Strong at the brewingnetwork.com and you ask your question. Try and keep it ideally to one question per email. It makes it a little easier for me as I'm sorting through them. When there's something with like 10 questions, I can't really get that on the air and not leave some of your questions out. Uh, you know, and if you're going to take issue with this, please only take one issue at a time, one issue per email. <laughs> one right. frustration. You, if, if you hate us, only, only mention one thing you hate about us per email. Or one of us, just me. I'll take all these. <laughs> Yeah, these delicate flowers can't take one. <laughs> oh, Finn, Finn, it's all right. It's all right. These guys, these guys are just they are they're very they're very delicate. They can't take I've I've had no, 16, I appreciate Finn's feedback. I do. I've had 16 years of people kicking me in the in the peaches. So <laughs> it it doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't bother me at all. He's I appreciate that he listens and that he cared enough Absolutely. to send in uh, such a, a nice detailed email. And uh, to reason his his reasons of as to why we suck, you know, <laughs> I've, I've just gotten emails <laughs> to say we suck with no reasoning. And he, you, you no, suck. no, his his, his, his <laughs> we need at least a little bit. His, his email was great. Uh, his email was great. No, no yeah. problems with that at all. Uh, let's see here. And hopefully, I will run into him in Norway. Well, sucker punch him, and you know. <laughs> You mean in the taxi, you'll run into them? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, all right. Uh, this one, Colin, he says, uh, Jamel, Travis, and Michael. Oh, you got mentioned. First time. I did. First time. Holy moly. Feels like the first time. What? I've been focusing my homebrewing efforts uh, for the last year on making the best lager possible. I've uh, taken a lot of your guys and others' tips, such as high pitch rates, cold pitching, and slow ramps, etc. And my loggers have improved a lot. My standard process for fermentation is to pitch two mil per cell per plato uh, at 44 degrees Fahrenheit, hold until visible croissant 
Then let it naturally rise to 55 and hold until fermentation is completed. I then ramp down at 2 degrees Fahrenheit every 12 hours until I'm at 34. I'll fine with gelatin and let it sit for 48 hours. At this point, I dose transfer to a keg. Oh, I close transfer to a keg. Sorry. I'm getting old. My eyes don't work. Put the keg in the fridge, set the PSI to my serving pressure, and forget about it for four weeks. In this procedure, the lagering is done with no yeast cake and under pressure. Would lagering on the yeast cake make a noticeable positive difference on the beer? Thanks, Colin. I got a ton of stuff on this. Uh, lagering on the yeast cake make a noticeable positive difference in beer? Uh, no. Um, a, a yeast cake, the vast majority of the yeast is completely inactive or for the most part inactive with the beer. It is just the fine top layer that is exposed to the beer below it. I mean, there is some beer in there, but, you know, it's really not exchanging quickly. The yeast underneath it is pretty much, for the most part, dormant and uh, working its way towards starting to break down over time. Uh, so uh, this is, again, one of the reasons why Budweiser uses the beechwood chips. Uh, they boil them so they're all fluffy, spiky bits of wood, and then the yeast settles on them, and they get this massive surface area. And that's what interacts with the beer and why they go through that trouble. A yeast cake, even though there's a ton of yeast underneath, it's not doing anything for your beer. So it's better to get the yeast cake out of there. You can make the transfer when there's still a little bit of yeast in suspension. It will fall to the bottom. And a light dusting on the bottom is the most that's going to be interacting with it. Uh, let's see here. Um, pressure, you know, uh, pressure will, you know, slow down the yeast a bit, but it's not a big deal in this, in this scenario. And the way you ask this question, I think you don't want to lager under pressure if you want the yeast to aid in your lagering. You don't want that thin layer of yeast slowing down. Yeah. I don't think it's going to make that big a difference. Uh, it'll still interact. Let's see here. Um, the more critical thing is if he's finding with gelatin and then lagering the gelatin is taking out yeast and suspension which could actually do things for the beer and um when that falls down the gelatin and the yeast that you're taking out of suspension and the other particulates you're taking out of suspension falls on the bottom of the of the keg or whatever fermenter uh is masking the yeast that are on the bottom that could do something so that's pretty much stopping dead in its tracks the what you're trying to achieve so i wouldn't find it uh before if if you're gonna logger and expect the yeast to do anything you know, the le one you're taking out the yeast and two you're masking a yeast that's on the bottom so it's not doing any good at that point yeah it would straight past that part i mean um then going down two degrees every Fahrenheit every 12 hours, that's that's fine. That's fairly slow. You could actually go a little faster than that until you're at 34 degrees Fahrenheit. I would either stop prior to 40 degrees. I'd stop at like 41, 42 if you want the yeast to be active. Or if you're going 
down to 34, you might as well go down to 29, which is, you know, or minus two degrees C, 28.4 degrees Fahrenheit, which is BAM force favorite temperature for uh, the conditioning of beer. Clarity improves head retention, a lot of different things for, for letting it sit uh, nice and cold like that. The other thing, again, going backwards through this whole thing, um, two mil or two million uh, cells per Play-Doh per mil is a little bit more than I would generally do. I go one and a half. It's two is fine. I'd rather do a little too much than do little. But keep in mind, uh, the more you add, the more uh, diacetyl precursors are produced. So it could increase diacetyl. Which is something else you didn't mention. You are letting it rise to 55 and holding. I like that you're pitching at 44. Um, I generally, in the first like 36 hours, let it free rise to about 50. Hold it for a couple of days at 50. And then I let it, uh, then I start ramping the temperature up. And by the end of fermentation, I try and get to like 60, 60 plus. And that is every time it seems like it might be slowing down, I just raise it a degree or two. And so that I get really good attenuation and then it consumes the, the diacetyl uh, in the beer. Okay. So it sounds like you're really going, uh, Colin, sounds like you're really going down the right path and you're, you're focusing on all the right things to making great lager. And I'm sure your lagers have gotten uh, even better, but I think those small little tweaks that I mentioned could uh, improve them the last little bit to being like, you know, God's gift to lager brewing. All right. Yeah. Now that I've filled in all that airtime, what have you guys got to say? Send us some bottles. <laughs> I would think when I make lager, I kind of have that, I guess you would call it modern where you do the, the maturation rest. And so I'll, I'll actually ferment more around 50, 52. And then once I get to that, you know, like we talked about a couple of shows ago, that visible mm -hmm. slowdown where I get to like, you know, one Play-Doh per day or 0 0.004, 0.003 points per day, I will, uh, increase the temperature slowly over a course of two days, but I end up mm -hmm. 68 and I will match. I'll do like a full maturation rest for, you know, a week like that, or I, I let it finish. And then I've got to see at least three days of no action on the tilt. And then I'll even give it another couple days. 60, 60, 60, 65 degrees in that range. I like to be Yeah, I tend not to go more than 65, but I think, you know, if, if you're seeing activity and you're still having to raise the temp, I, I see no reason not to go up to 68 either. But if, if yeah. you're going, if, if your main objective at that point in time is making sure you don't end up with diacetyl, is the yeast still going to be active at that temperature? Or I mean, does the yeast like just, I mean, I'm not, I don't brew a whole lot of lagers. I've had Mike's lagers. They're excellent. I've had your lagers. Well, they're excellent. Neil hoards all his damn beer. So no, um, <laughs> uh, I mean, are are you if you're trying to clean up the the, uh, the diacetyl precursors? Uh, at what point in time is it too warm for a lager yeast, or is that too general because there's a shit ton of lager yeasts? Probably like ninety, ninety five. Okay, so yeah, you keep coming up. Well, some yeast will slow down earlier than that, but a lot of yeasts 
they'll they'll go once you get into the mid 90s yeast a lot of yeast will shut down because it's too warm for them they, they start to freak out but you're also stepping up slowly I mean, mike you're yeah. not going up to 68 quickly so that's that's time to get it that warm it's over like two days i'll get up to 68 and then i'll hold it at 68 till it finishes and i've been chasing clean you know like i want clean as can be no dacetyl no sulfur like I'm doing full 90 minute boils. I'm doing, you know, real cold pitches. I'm doing, you know, but then I try to finish it up warm and let it get real clean. But I know that's not the, the old way. And some people get really upset when they hear you make lagers like that because you're supposed to do it kind of more the way he's doing it, where you actually will cool it down after the, the 55 ferment. You know, it's like, I know in, um, out of brew, they talk about that's the, the traditional way of lagering. So what do you do after you hit the 68 and it's stable and there's no fermentation? Do you crash cool it? So I will gently cool it and my setup, I can only get down to like 40. And so then I'll uh, rack at, at 40 degrees. I'll drop the yeast and rack it to my, I call it a pseudo bright, but it's just a 10 gallon torpedo. Okay. And that goes in my fridge at 30 at 28 or 31 or whatever I can get the fridge to. And uh, I, I will, I don't really consider it, it is a lagering, but it's more of just a, a physical conditioning of the beer where I'm looking for the right clarity. I let it kind of age and settle out. And I think beers kind of open up as they sit in the keg, even without yeast in there. Or there's, there's yeast in there, but I, I mean, like with that Meritzen, that Travis had, that, that one was four weeks on the yeast and then another three weeks in the pseudo bright just to clear up and I don't use any findings. I didn't really use any fancy uh, processes other than just time and temperature to, to let it get really nice and clear, get it carbonated correctly and let the beer kind of open up as I call it just over the, the couple of weeks in the keg. But some people swear that you need yeast in there. I mean, there, there was yeast in there. So maybe it was more like the fine dusting, like Jamil was saying, but I've always tended to what I read about it more is that you can end up with more autolysis off flavors. Mm -hmm. If you, leave a big yeast cake in there for six weeks, eight weeks. I'm like, I'm, I'm really, I'm afraid of that flavor too. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and not just autologists, Jamil, I was thinking about if you're stressing the yeast in general, there's a lot in those yeast cells you don't necessarily want back in your beer, not just the fact that they're dying off. So back to this question about yeast cake, which you've done a whole lot more than just answer the simple yeast cake at the end. That's a great reason not to leave it on the yeast cake. Well, and as far as, you know, time, um, I had a, I told the story before I had a, a Scottish 60 shilling that I brewed and, uh, you know, it dropped perfectly clear. I transferred it to the keg, chilled it, all that. And it was thin and insipid. And, you know, the head was no head retention, giant bubbles. And, uh, I was like, ah, you know, and I, I just left it in the fridge and then somehow got shuffled around and it stayed in the back of the fridge for like a year, a year later, I'm like redoing my draft lines or you know, replacing draft lines. I'm like, what is this gag? I'm like, oh, it's the Scottish 60 shilling. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that. I should just dump that. It was no good. So I went ahead and poured a pint just to check it. And it was spectacular. It mm. had this tremendous body to it. And it was had these micro fine bubbles that just the head retention, it was just like, you know, crema on a, you know, 
it it just it formed and just stood stood didn't move and uh it was spectacular sent in the competition got uh i don't know you know first place you know with with that and you know going up against you know we heavies and other things yeah yeah and it was just because it sat there for a year and it allowed you know later on in the keg i noticed that there was you know just micro fine dust at the bottom that was you know like the roast barley uh just really you know just the finest of dust uh was down there and you know just other other material had dropped out and you know there's probably some chemical uh you know changes that happened as well over time but it made a huge difference there was really if there was any yeast in there it was very very minimal and um the the you know the beer just turned out great and you know time and cold can do a lot for them the the brewers in dusseldorf um they tend to all centrifuge and filter their beer and then you know they'll store it uh around freezing uh for their lagering period they don't lager on yeast they lager not the yeast yeah natural finding yeah. the natural uh, process of yeah. uh, just letting it, just letting it rest uh, and we've all experienced where beer rests for a while how it improves sometimes yeah i i always akin it to like a a, a flower opening kind of thing you know it, it's almost like the beer goes from muddled and kind of lost and then it can really come into shape and the flavors become pronounced and really nice and beautiful and it's, uh, that's why I notice, anyways, with a, a good amount of cold storage. I am a delicate flower. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I have know. bloomed. I have blossomed. I don't. I don't <laughs> just have the thickest gut in the group, but probably also have the thickest skin. But anyway, you know. <laughs> that's what I've heard. All right. Uh, well, another great show. Thank you uh, all for participating and uh, helping answering these questions for for our uh, uh, wonderful listeners. Uh, thank you, everybody who who emailed and uh, and who uh, listened live and asked questions. We really appreciate it. Without you, the show is meaningless. So uh, keep listening, keep asking questions. We'll keep answering. Uh, and if you have criticism, that's okay too. We appreciate those as well. You're all the wonderful for for taking the time to participate. In the show. Uh, and hopefully I will see you uh, uh, defend. I'll see you out in Norway and uh, Henrik, I'll see you in Sweden. Looking forward to it. Until then, uh, make sure you're you're supporting our sponsors, uh, Blickman Engineering. Email and feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell them how much you appreciate that he paid for the show so you didn't have to. Other than that, uh, keep on brewing. Brew strong, everybody. Brew strong. Brew strong. Ha, <laughs> ha,